Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. And uh, we are in our series, Milk and Honey. And uh, we're talking about the substance and the sweetness of the story of the Bible. And kind of what we're doing is we're going to look at sort of the big picture of the story of the Bible. Because the Bible, although it is um, one book, um, it's made up of 66 books with over 40 authors on different continents. And, and all of the uh, written over uh, uh, thousands of years sort of time period of the Bible being written. And yet there's a singular story. There's one sort of uh, uh, thing that it's all moving towards. And sort of what we've been saying um, is that it's about creation and commission, rebellion, um, then redemption, and then recreation and new commission. It's sort of the, the theme throughout the Bible. And so far we've looked at creation um, and commission, and then we've been looking at rebellion, and we're going to sort of continue to look at the idea um, of rebellion. And I'm calling this message tonight Combined Rebellion. Because we began and we, we talked about sort of the heavenly rebellion. At, at we were introduced to sort of the, the big antagonist to the scriptures, the Satan, the devil, um, and sort of his role in the world, how he first tried to be like God, trying to elevate himself to be like God, and then he was cast out. He was, he was sent out from the presence of God, and now he, uh, the Genesis 3 says he was cursed to crawl on his belly, and the idea is that he was he's sentenced to the earth, and here he is roaming, trying to dissuade people from following Jesus. And then last week, Shane talked about the human rebellion, how, how the serpent then tricked and deceived Adam and Eve to disobey God, and really through this same um, plot line. You can be like God. You don't need godly wisdom. You can have human wisdom and you can elevate yourself to be like God. And this sin caused them to be cast out of the presence of God and then sin entered the world. And we see how rapidly that happens. It goes from perfect communion in the garden with God to the very next scene, brothers getting in a disagreement and one of them murdering their own brother. Because so quickly sin corrupts and invades what God's good earth. And all of the fallout we're still experiencing today. You know, a lot of times people will ask as like a question to God is why if God was so good, why is there so much wickedness in the world? Why do people hate each other? Why do they, uh, why do, they do bad things? Why is there crime? Why is there sickness? All of these things. Well, Genesis 3 answers that question. Because God created everything good, man rebelled, and as a result of the rebellion, um, we see sin corrupting the world. Now we're going to continue that rebellion, and we're going to talk about a combined rebellion. And just a little heads up, this is the weirdest passage of scripture in the whole Bible. All right? This is not a Sunday school text that you learn about. Genesis 6, Genesis 11, Genesis 11 a little bit, um, but probably in a random way. I feel like a lot of Sunday school Bible studies, you kind of get like the gist of it, and then when you grow up and you're like, wait, what are we talking about? What just happened? So this is a very strange one. Are you guys ready? Are you sure you're ready? I don't think you are ready, because if you're ready, you'd look a little bit more ready. Okay, so last time um, I told you guys to put on your thinking caps. I'm going to reiterate that, thinking caps. But probably this time um, I would say maybe plan on taking notes. Um, I put a lot of notes on the screen as well if you want to take a photo or if you follow along in the YouVersion Bible app um, and you go to events, all of the notes are there um, as well. Sound good? 
You guys ready? It's about to get weird. All right. Genesis 6, verse 1. It says this. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his day shall be 120 years. Now there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. That's important to know. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a pretty heavy sentence, isn't it? I'm going to read it again. It says that he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so um, this, in, this then goes into the flood story, which are we familiar with the story of Noah and the ark? Noah and the ark? We're, so God calls Noah. Actually, would you raise your hand if you're familiar with Noah and the ark? Okay. That's everyone, right? Okay, cool. Um, so I don't need to really tell that story. We get it. God chooses Noah. God floods the earth. And uh, Noah and the animals that he uh, has are saved. This is sort of the precursor of that. The same chapter goes into that story right after this. Um, but this story, we're introduced to a couple of interesting things, right? We're told that the sons of God um, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and so they came down, they seduced them, um, they had children with them, and that we're told that the giants of old were then um, created. Uh, from that. So there's a couple of views on this passage of uh, scripture. The first view is what I'm calling the sort of rationalist view of this story. The rationalist view. Um, that is a view that says that the sons of God, in that language, is the sons of Seth. Now Seth is the other child born to Adam and Eve. Right? Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, um, and then uh, Abel, or excuse me, Cain killed Abel, um, and then they had another son named Seth. And, and some scholars say that the sons of God were the sons of Seth because they were the ones that, were, that continued to follow God. And then the daughters of E, or the daughters of men, uh, re- reference the daughters of Cain. So that's sort of like a rationalist view, that it's not supernatural, that the sons of God were Seth's descendants, and the sons of, uh, the daughters of men were Cain's descendants. Now the problem with this view is that it doesn't have an answer for other appearances of the sons of God, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, and it also fails to paint a big picture for the spiritual and physical tension. So if we just like throw this off, oh, the sons of God just mean humans, um, the, the sons of Seth and the daughters of, uh, of man just mean the, the descendants of Cain. It's just a human view. It fails to paint a big picture um, uh, of the spiritual and physical tension, and uh, it, it fails to answer 
uh, the other appearance of the sons of God. I'm sorry, this, I thought it would work with the little desk thing. It's not working. It's too low. I'm going to grab this table. Are you guys good with that? Where is it? There it is. All right, anyways, you guys good? Was that super distracting? All right, yes. All right, so it fails to answer those two questions. Are you with me so far? Is this making sense? Okay. Um, It also fails to explain um, the other points in the Old Testament that uses the phrase sons of God. Now, I mentioned that already. There's four other appearances in the Old Testament with this phrase, sons of God. Never does it reference humans. Always it references angelic beings. Are you with me? So for us to say, okay, the sons of God are the sons of Seth, it fails because the rest of the Old Testament, every time the word sons of God, it speaks to the divine council. We see it in Job chapter 2. We see it in... I can't remember. I should have written that down. I didn't. Here we are. Uh, So it's the sons of God. So that's sort of the rationalist view. And it also isn't the view held by New Testament writers, both Peter and Jude. We'll talk about that in a moment. The second view is the spiritual view. Okay, Um, The spiritual view would say that the sons of God are the Elohim. If you guys remember, those are other divine beings created by God. They are heavenly beings, and they pass through the unseen realm with bodies and seduced women. And then from that, and this is where the first view fails as well, because it created a hybrid offspring known as the Nephilim and the Raphaim which are the giants of old, okay? So when we read those verses that said it created the giants, that in the original language is the word Nephilim, all right? Nephilim, Uh, I think I have it on the screen. Yeah, there it is. That's how you spell it, in case you're wondering. The Nephilim and the Raphaim, which is the giants of old. And this is the view that the New Testament writers hold, right? That these, these heavenly beings pass through the heavenly realm onto planet earth and they, uh, they, made, they procreated with humans and as a result we get these giants of old, these men of renown. Uh, listen to what Jude says in Jude chapter 1. He says this, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, uh, abode he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So it talks about them leaving where they belong and coming to earth. And then 1 Peter, he says it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also, listen, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long suffering awaited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Okay, so I'm just, this is New Testament referencing this same story in Genesis chapter 6. Are you with me? So the New Testament view is that these were divine beings that left the heavenly abode and they came to earth. They procreated with, the, with human beings and they created these Nephilim, these Raphaim. This is the story, okay? It's a little bizarre, isn't it? That's, that's the story. And then we're told that because of this, um, God chooses to flood and destroy the world. So why are we looking at this? Why understand this passage of Scripture? 
This is the question. I, this is my only sort of point tonight is why understand uh, this passage of scripture. Um, the first is this. It helps us to understand the influence of the spiritual realm. Okay, this story is important because it helps us understand and navigate the influence of the spiritual realm. Now, we talked a few weeks ago, and if you missed it, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast. Um, but we talked about how just because it's invisible doesn't make it not real, right? Just because you can't see it doesn't make it imaginary. It just means it's not, it's not seen, it's just like the wind, it's just like sound, it's just like somebody being in a different room. You know that it exists, you just can't see it. This is the heavenly realm. We worship an invisible God, right? We believe that God, Yahweh, he's three in one, he exists outside of time, and yet he makes his presence known with his people, and he reveals himself through his word, and through experience, and through the sending of his Holy Spirit. We know that he's real, but we can't see him. And in the same, it's the same way, there is a whole host of heavenly uh, uh, beings, divine beings that are created that are outside of the realm of the scene. Because of that, because of that reality, we need to understand that they have an influence on our reality. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. There are forces that are actively opposed to God's good creation. There are forces that are actively opposed to God's good creation. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. He says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil or the attacks of the devil. Listen, this is the key. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our fight's not with one another. right? The, the human experience, the problem is not flesh. The human experience, it's not your classmate or your coworker. The human experience is not your parents who are grounding you. The human experience, it's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. We actually live in a, in a spiritual story. And as a result of that, there's, a po there's forces that are opposed to God and his good creation beyond the surface of what you're seeing and feeling. Right? We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Listen, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, okay? So for Paul, this isn't poetry. This isn't an idea. This isn't pretend. This is reality, right? There are, there are actively not just forces, but he says powers. He says rulers of darkness, and he says, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So even in that verse alone, we recognize not only are there outside forces, but they hold power and they rule. Okay, that's important to note. This is New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul talking about our follow following Jesus. So when we look at the story of Genesis 6, it gives us insight into the influence of the spiritual realm. The second reason the story is important is because it gives us clarity about future characters. Okay, the, the, the writer of Genesis is, is sort of setting us up for future stories. He's helping us to understand a bigger picture of things that's going on through the Old Testament narrative. Now, we get mention of the giants here in Genesis 6, right? That word is the Nephilim. This is a, it's where the sons of God and the daughters of men have their offspring, and these offspring are men of renown. They're giants, 
And this is important because it'll give us reference in future characters. So when we meet giants, we're not confused. Right? Because <laughs> if you're reading the Bible, all of a sudden you're like, Goliath, he was a giant. And you're like, yeah, of course. Giants. Now this story helps us go, yeah, of course, I get it. Without that, like when you're just in Sunday school, you're like, yeah, giants. Of course. I, I want to be like, well, what happened to them? Where are they? Like, what's going on? <laughs> So, so this story is important because it's, it's helping us get a framework of future characters. Listen, this is Numbers chapter 13. It says this. Notice the word Anak or the word Anakim. This is the descendants of the Nephilim. All right, it's important. Listen, verse 27. Then they told him, and said, uh, this is when Moses sends the spies into the land, of the promised land, and they come back with the report. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, listen, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, or the Nephilim. There, uh, verse 33, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Okay, now some people, this is sort of a more like loose, it's kind of like fringe scholars take that verse literally, that like they were literally like grasshoppers in the sight, like the giants were like 50 feet tall. That's like a little sort of like exaggerated version, but it is an agreement that when it says, we're like grasshoppers in their sight, that they're talking about giants, massive human beings that live in, in the promised land before God sends them in. It's also important later as we move into the story. It doesn't matter right now. The second character that this, will, this verse or this story helps us reference is Goliath, right? We meet Goliath, and he's a giant. He's part of the Philistines, and he's this massive warrior. And it's important when we get to that story for us to not be like, whoa, where did this come from? And not only was Goliath a giant, the Bible tells us that his siblings were giants too. Listen to this, 1 Chronicles chapter 20. This is the word when it says giants, it's the Raphaim. But it's the same, the descendants of this story in Genesis 6. Uh, 1 Chronicles 20. Again, there was war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jar, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was, there was a war at Gath. Um, there was a man of great stature, listen to this, with 24 fingers and toes. Six on each hand on, and six on each foot. He was also born to the giants, to the Raphaim. So when he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Okay, so Genesis 6 help us, helps us understand when we get to these stories, right? They're killing giants. Where do the giants come from? Okay, so it answers, it gives us insight into future characters. The third thing this story does, it answers, it gives answers to the flood narrative. Okay, this story gives us answers to the flood narrative. Because when you read the story of the flood, a question should be asked. Why did God destroy everyone? Why was God so sick and tired of people that he wiped out all of humanity except for Noah and his descendants? Well, it tells us in the story. Look, look in verse... Um, on uh, the same story, it says, 
uh, at the very end, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the story goes on to give us more insight, but the, the sort of implication for this is that Noah had a pure bloodline. What I mean by that is here we have this, this scene where the sons of God come and make offspring with the daughters of men, and they corrupt God's creation. They, crea- they corrupt the image bearers, they corrupt the, the bloodline, they, they corrupt what God's doing. And you, here we have Noah, and the, the, what it, the implication is that Noah's bloodline was pure. In other words, he was not corrupted by these sons of God. Are you with me? Now this is important, because from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, we looked at it last week, that when sin, the serpent, deceives Eve... And then God makes a promise to the serpent. Do you remember it? The promise is you're going you're gonna to bruise uh, his heel, but from the seed of a woman, he's going to crush your head. That, that through the seed of woman, God is going to bring forth a savior that's going to destroy once and, once and for all sin and death and the devil. So what's, what, what's Satan's plan? Well, if he's going to bring in a savior through the seed of a woman, I need to corrupt the bloodline so that way that seed can never come to reality. So he sends the sons of God. They come down. They impregnate the women. They have these giant offsprings. They corrupt the bloodline of God. And it seems like it thwarts the plan. And then we meet Noah. Noah is pure. Noah hasn't been corrupted. Noah actually can carry the seed. Noah can actually be the one that, that brings out the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3. Are you guys with me? This is making sense. Okay, I'm going to keep asking that because it's important. Because it, I'm nerding out to like the extreme of nerding out. Like, you guys are like, this guy is so weird. You don't know the half of it, all right? This is me tame. So Noah's bloodline was pure. He was righteous. So God spared him to redeem the world through the seed of woman. And then he then protects that one bloodline. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay, so it answers the flood narrative. Why did God destroy the whole world? Well, because humanity had been corrupted. That's why it says everything that they did was wicked. They'd been corrupted. And yet Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Why? Because he was righteous. That's what the Bible says. He was righteous. He had faith in God, but he was made righteous. He was pure. And as a result, the Messiah could come through his seed. Now, the fourth reason we uh, understand this is because of the, it shows us the depth of the rebellion and the height of the rescue. It shows us the depth of the rebellion and the height of the rescue. Creation is more broken than we realize. The story of of, uh, creation and the rebellion is not just the story of a woman being confused and eating an apple from a tree and then sin entering the world, right? I think sometimes we think, like, I don't get it. Like, why is that such a big deal? Like, geez, chill out. It didn't seem like that big a deal. We realize the rebellion is way deeper than just a confused uh, couple eating something they shouldn't eat. 
But it also shows us that God's love is more expansive and the cross is more necessary than we realize. The cross allows us to be a new creation in Christ Jesus, a part of a new bloodline through faith. And so where sin had been corrupted, sin had ruined, sin's destroyed, Jesus makes us a new creation through the cross where he destroys and puts to death sin and the flesh and allows for us to be made righteous. So the depth of the rebellion and the height of that rescue. Okay, so that's the first story. Now the story kind of continues because after this, uh, the flood happens, Noah's spared, but, but it kind of continues in this vein. Flip over to Genesis chapter 11 now. You guys feel good about that story so far? You kind of get it? You see how it's moving the narrative along? Okay, Genesis 11, look at this. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So this is post-flood, okay? So this is after uh, the flood. Noah and his family procreate. There's a bunch of offspring. People are living a long time. They're living like 900 plus years. They're living a very long time. Um, uh, that goes back, sorry, let me just look at, because one of the confusing things I've always had in, the, in Genesis 6, it says, God says, I will destroy man. Um, and he says, oh, where is it? Uh, oh, yeah, it says, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Um, it doesn't seem like that's a, like a life expectancy yet. People will start living shorter even after the flood, but they still live a long time. Abraham, we know, lived to be in his hundreds. Um, that's more like the timeline God's giving uh, from that promise to when he floods the earth. That's where most people think it took Noah like 100 years to build the ark. Because it says from this day it'll be 120 years till the end of man. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Genesis 11 verse 1. It says this. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they began to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Here we see a little divine counsel. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. They ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay, do you guys see the story? One people, one language, one uh, objective. Let's build a tower that builds its way up to the heavens and let's establish a name for ourselves. Let's be powerful, let's be united, um, and let's have one goal. And this story is to recreate Eden, right? We are gonna, we are gonna build our way back up to God. Remember even uh, Eden was like a touch point. It's the mountain of God or the garden of God. This is where heaven and earth intersected. It's where the presence of God dwelt. The whole earth wasn't Eden, just Eden was Eden. That's why the commission was go to make the whole world Eden. This point was let's recreate Eden. Let's, make the, let's build ourselves up to God. But then also many, many suggest that this story was to uh, attempt to re-enchant the sons of God. 
Right? So the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they came down. And many people think that this story is we want to get their attention again. Now Moses in Deuteronomy gives us insight into this text. And he also expands and talks about the other God's powers. And even uh, Moses is the first one to call someone a demon. So Deuteronomy uh, 32 is an interesting chapter to read on your own. But listen to this. We're, we're starting to get somewhere. You guys still with me? This is fun for me, so I hope it's clicking for you guys. Uh, verse 8, it says this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, what do you think he's referencing? What do you think he's referencing? We just read it. Babel, right? Okay, so when, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided the mankind, listen, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And, listen, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay. Genesis 6, right? We're, we, we, we see the language. We're familiar with all this stuff. So what's, what, what's happening? Well, this gives us insight into Genesis 11 when God disperses the people. Because he, dis, he disperses the people, they, he confuses the language, but he also disinherits them. Or in other words, he hands them over to other gods. This is the point. Is it, are you with me? He, he, he disperses them, he confuses the language, he sends them all over, but then he also disinherits them. He hands them over, the nations, to other gods. And throughout the Bible, as a result of this, we meet other spiritual powers. Some are simply idols, like when we talk about little g-gods in the Old Testament, some are idols. They're man-made little boxes or, or, or statues that people worship. A lot of them, though, represent gods, right? They didn't just make up, like, I'm going to build this, this tree and call it a god. Usually it represents some other god. But then we also meet in the Old Testament narrative other gods with actual power, right? Let, let's think about the story in Exodus, Okay, Moses goes, he's delivering the people from uh, bondage to the Egyptians. Uh, he goes in there with the staff, the rod of God, and God says, you're going to use this to do signs and wonders and miracles that's going to prove that Yahweh is the God of all gods. And as he does signs and miracles, it's so interesting that the sorcerers or the magicians or the, 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 the um, priests of Egypt also do signs and wonders. Right? You're like, what the heck? I thought God was the only one that did that kind of stuff. Well, remember, there's God, God is handing them over to little g-gods. So you read that, and you're like, oh, okay. There, there's, there's other forces at play. Are you guys with me? Are you sure? Raise your hand if you're bored out of your mind. Please be honest. Okay, a couple. All right, that's okay. I just, I'm just curious. Um, raise your hand if this is interesting and helpful. Okay, thank you. Hey, you put your hand up twice. I appreciate it. <clears throat> so, so some have power and influence. We meet the gods of Egypt, of Molech, of ba uh, Baal, all of these. They have power. They have influence. Here in Genesis 11, God rejects the whole of humanity. Up until this point, all people were still God's people. Okay, so in the beginning, God creates mankind. 
Mankind rebels against God. God chooses Noah to spare them after the corruption because of the sons of God. God spares Noah and then they begin to multiply. All people were still God's people. All people were still part of uh, 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 or under God's authority. And then Genesis 11 happens. They're unified. They speak one language. They rebel against God. They reject God. They try to build this tower to make a name for themselves or make themselves God. And so God scatters them. He disperses them, but he also disinherits them. He, he rejects them. They're no longer my people. I am rejecting all people. Okay, that's, that's what's happening there. The, the garden rebellion got them kicked out of the, of the garden, but it didn't get them disinherited. Here the nations are scattered and disinherited, okay? That's important. So why do we understand this? Why do we look at this? Two things, and we'll wrap this up. One, this is important because God gets man. Man doesn't get God. Man cannot work their way to God. Even with all human intellect and creativity, they can't get to God physically or spiritually. This was their attempt. We're going to make our name for ourselves. We don't need God. We can be God. Again, this is the same narrative in Genesis 3. We don't need God. We can be God. We're going to build ourselves a tower. We're going to make our name for ourselves. We're going to have it stand. People are going to know us because we're going to do this thing. But... Man can't work their way to God. Now, other texts uh, show that this sort of plot was probably an advanced and a creative attempt by a Nephilim character named Nimrod. Um, he's referenced in Genesis 10.8, which is a hilarious name, Nimrod. I'm pretty sure my dad's called me that before. Um, but uh, he's, a, he's a descendant of the Nephilim, and he's also the, the king, the warrior king, Sorry, I know I'm, it sounds crazy, but um, of Babel, of Babylon. And this was probably a plot by Nimrod, Genesis 10.8. This is also the time of some of the megaliths like Pyramid, um, the Snake Mound in Ohio, Stonehenge, and other ancient structures. Um, you can look into that kind of stuff where, where did all of these massive structures come from? Well, there's these warrior giants that are leading peoples to do all sorts of crazy things. And when you follow um, ancient mythology, uh, you see connection points all across of some sort of giant being influencing people to do crazy things. Like the Snake Mountain in Ohio, which I feel like a lot of people don't even know about. And there's like giant megalith in Ohio, in the United, like, oh, United States, Ohio. You're like, what in the world? Um, can't make this stuff up. But my point in all of this is, especially if you like sort of nerd out on some of these crazy things, like how did the stones get there in Stonehenge? Um, it's crazy to see like the biblical influence in our whole world. All right. So, but the point is God gets man. It's not the other way around. That is still the story even in the New Testament. We can't earn God's approval. You don't get God's favor by doing good things or going to church or trying to be perfect. We get it through faith. God makes his way to man. Man doesn't make his way to God. That's why after Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top, because God made himself available to man. He became flesh so that all people could know him and have relationship with God. God gets man, not the other way around. Okay? But then the second thing this, is, this, this reveals to us is that in this story, God goes narrow to reach broad. Okay? God goes narrow to reach broad. God confuses the language. He scatters the nations. 
and he disinherits the nations, turning them over to other spiritual forces and powers. That's what Moses tells us, right? That God scatters them and he gives them over to the sons of God. And he does so, listen, to protect, to provide, and then to purchase back. Okay, so he disinherits the nations. He gives them over to other gods. They have rule, like all of these different influences. And it's really interesting because I feel like we see the echoes of that in our world today. Like you go to certain regions and it seems like there is like demonic influence over those certain regions. Right? Like, like you, go to, you go to Hollywood, you go to L.A., and it's been like that probably since, since I mean, as, as far as like human beings have lived there, where it's image obsessed. It's the God of image. It's the God of it's all about me. It's the God of the paparazzi, right? And it doesn't matter if it was like Audrey Hepburn in like the 40s or whenever she lived, or if it's, I can't even think of a famous person today. Who'd you say? Yeah, Steve Harvey today. <laughs> I feel like he probably doesn't live in Hollywood. I feel like it's like a Kardashian or something that lives in Hollywood. So anyways, he, he disinherits. There, there's, you see influence over regions even to this day. But he does so to protect, provide, and then purchase back. Listen, God then chooses Abraham. He creates a nation. We'll look at this next week. He brings about the Son of God, right? The son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through the bloodline to redeem the whole earth to put it back under Yahweh's control, right? So he disinherits. He chooses one people group to protect, the people of Israel, the children of Israel. And the craziest thing, this is what's mind-boggling, is the nation that God chooses. He disinherits everyone disinherits the nations, and the nation that God chooses doesn't exist, right? God chooses Israel. Well, he chooses Abraham, who's 100 years old and has no kids. This is who God chooses and saying, this is my nation. Wait, there's like millions of people on the planet already. You could have, cho you could have chosen like a strong nation. No, 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 I'll choose a 100-year-old. The Bible calls him as good as dead, Abraham is good as dead. Why? I'm going to make him a nation. Without, without God's involvement in Abraham and Sarah's life, there is no nation of Israel. Right? So God shows up. He chooses the least among these to make them the greatest. Why? Through Abraham's bloodline, then you get to David. Through David, you follow the line down to Mary, who is chosen to be the virgin birth, another important part of the story, virgin birth to bring Jesus into the world so that he can redeem the whole of humanity. That's why Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is actually a really important scene. Listen to this. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. It says, um, again, the devil took him, Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain, and listen, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Wait a second. How can the devil give him all of the nations, all of the kingdoms, all of the power? He doesn't have that authority. Actually, he does have that authority, right? They were disinherited. They have, there's rulers and powers over the different nations. And he says, you can have it all. I'll give it to you right now. Just bow down and worship me. You, can have, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do anything. Actually, the devil wouldn't know the cross. He doesn't know that that's his actual fatal blow. It is the coolest thing ever. Um, but uh, he, he's like, you can have 
just worship me. And then what does Jesus say? He says, away with you, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So here the devil is saying, you can have all, all, all of the kingdoms. Why? Because he has that power and authority. And Jesus says, no thanks, I'm going to take him back. I'm going to redeem the whole earth back under the control of Yahweh through his death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection as redemption for the whole earth brought uh, everything back under the control of Yahweh. Okay. From that, we're going to close with this. I went so long. I'm so sorry. We're not going to sing a song. We're just going to go straight to groups. But this, this is how I'm going to close. The kingdom of God is then brought into the world. Right? Jesus' death and resurrection and then the sending of the Holy Spirit births the church and then brings the kingdom of God into the world. And listen, it isn't split up from nation or specific geographical locations. God doesn't make himself a, a, a king over a region. The church is the kingdom of God called to spread that kingdom of love, forgiveness, and hope to the whole world. Listen, and every time someone is saved, the kingdom of light expands and the kingdom of darkness shrinks. This is what we're a part of. Every time a follower of Jesus places faith in him, or every time a person places faith in Jesus, every time a person is baptized, that's actually Peter goes on to say that every time someone's baptized, um, it goes down to like the darks where these sons of God are held, and it preaches the gospel to them again and says, you lost another one, the kingdom of light got another one. Like literally there's like so much implication um, through salvation. But the point is that every time someone places faith in Jesus, the kingdom of light expands. And it pushes back the kingdom of darkness. It's not limited to a geographical location. It's not uh, uh, limited to a race or uh, uh, an ethnicity or a country or a people or a gender. That the gospel goes to every person and the kingdom of God then expands throughout generations, throughout the world, through his church. So the whole point, God goes narrow why? So he could reach the whole earth. So he had, he had a better plan all along. It wasn't going to be about location. It wasn't going to be about occupation, any of that. It's going to be about faith in Jesus. The whole world is then under the control of God through Jesus' finished work on the cross. And that we all are a part of the kingdom of God when we place faith in Jesus. Pretty good, huh? Okay, so now when somebody asks you, like, what the heck is Genesis 6 about? You know what it's about. It's about God redeeming the whole earth. It's about God going narrow so he can reach broad. So that God doesn't have to be limited to a person or a, or a nation. The nation of Israel was God's plan to bring about the Messiah so that he could reach the nations, every tribe, every tongue, through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness.